Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Baxter. Dr. Baxter is, uh, or he has taught 12 years at Wyoming Catholic College and now is uh, teaching at Notre Dame in their Great Books program. And he has written a book that we're going to especially be emphasizing today called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. He has also written books on the history of Christian mysticism and on Dante. So, Dr. Baxter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for the invitation. So, just to, to start with, in your book, I don't think it's a surprise to a lot of people that C.S. Lewis had uh, a medieval mind, but when someone sees the subtitle, they could think, well, that's just, you know, this is just a, a glorified bibliography of what he read. But, but this is a lot more than a big bibliography. So, so talk about what motivated you to write this book and, and, and what is your, your goal in introducing this side of C.S. Lewis? Yeah, I think the book for me was born about 10 years ago when I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my own kids. And at the same time, I was writing my dissertation on Dante. And what I was doing on Dante was tracing the influence of Greek Platonism on Dante. And so I was, but Dante didn't read Greek. So when you do that, you have to read a lot of weird books. You have to read a lot of weird books that are sort of forgotten. Sometimes, you know, hardly, um, you know, hardly translated uh, these sort of obscure books, which transmit all these kind of different sort of platonic ideas. So I was reading all that stuff. I was down into the, the nitty gritty of this. And while I was reading Chronicles of Narnia, I kept having these funny moments reading to the kids in which I would ask one of the kids, hey, could you hand me that pencil over there? And I start highlighting these passages or circling these passages because they were so eerily similar to the sort of stuff I was trying to write about as a scholar. Well, come to find out, of course, C.S. Lewis had a day job. And C.S. Lewis's day job, as I got more and more into this, was reading the exact same weird old books that I was reading. And I realized that he had got to pretty much all of the most interesting ideas that I was trying to you know, work up for my scholarly book. And then after that, I realized, wow, but this wasn't just a day job, though. This wasn't you know, Lewis wasn't successful as an apologist and as a writer of fiction, despite his day job, but because of it. And so right. this book is really about trying to bring to the surface all of these things which are just barely invisible beneath the surface. And one of the arguments that the book makes is that C.S. Lewis is a great uh, is a great recycler. And even this is a sort of medieval concept, the very sort of notion of authorship for us in the modern world is you have to say everything 100% original. And if you say anything that you're borrowing from anyone else, you have to footnote it precisely what you're taking, how many words in the, you know, the very page. But in the Middle Ages, they didn't have the same sort of idea of kind of intellectual property rights. It was more of your writing was sort of breathing fresh life, like God breathing into the, the clay of Adam, right? Into an old text and making it new. And so part of the argument of this book is that C.S. Lewis was doing that for some of the best ideas from the Middle Ages, which he believed really needed a new life and had sort of fallen out of favor, but not because they were bad ideas, but just because they had become so old and strange, sort of um, embedded in a historically foreign context. So this book is really about kind of uh, C.S. Lewis as a translator. But translating the wisdom of our pre-modern ancestors and how they felt about the world and lived in the world for, as he called us, modern barbarians. Mm. So that, that, that's a lot. And that, that's very, that, that is a dense statement, but all very helpful. And, and, and I'd like to unpack some of that. So yeah. 
you talk about uh, early on in your book the the three Lewises that we are familiar with. Of course, there's the apologetics uh, expert, one one who introduces people to to the truth of Christianity through right. you know mere Christianity, among many yeah. other things. Problem of pain, mere Christianity, yeah, right. Surprise, you take by matters to a certain extent, yeah. Yes, yes. And then there is the second Lewis, who is the fiction writer. The best-selling author of the 20th century, exactly. I, I did not know that. I, I think, did not. I think Michael Ward says that somewhere. Okay. Oh, well, no, pretty, I, I'm, I'm not. Even if he's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, true. And, and then I, I think you, you quote Roland Williams, which I had actually written somewhere just on my own, probably in a journal, when reading through Lewis's letters, who have actually meant almost as much to me now as any other part of his writing, because as a pastor, he writes like a pastor in his he letters. He does. And, I mean, it's, it's rare, to, sadly, it's rare to come across pastoral gifts in pastors. Right, <laughs> but, yeah. Much less, pastor, you know, men who who are not in the ministry who have that. So, so you know, but but that would be probably a, a, in his apologetics, you know, in in his Christian formation discipline type of person. But then you talk about the third Lewis, and and this is the one that you were just that you were just mentioning who does not get much publicity, right? So. This third Lewis was the one who is a, a medieval scholar. Yes. But, but something that I found throughout your book is you cannot divorce that third Lewis from the other two, for, from the one writing apologetics and certainly not from the one writing fiction. So, right. so how does his medieval thinking inform his apologetics and, and and then also inform his fiction writing? Yes, that's a great question. I think it's maybe, maybe to begin to answer it, it's a little something like this. And I'm going to quote the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor on here. But one of the things that Taylor's interested in his big, you know, 700-page, a secular age, he just begins with a very simple question. Why was it almost impossible not to believe in God in 1500, whereas in 2000, the time of writing for him, it's difficult, right? I mean, why is this sort of current against belief now, whereas once upon a time, it was with belief? I think, you know, I think in some ways, the Middle Ages for C.S. Lewis was a time in which, um, I'm going to put this in, uh, in quotation marks, scare quotes, right? In sure. which belief in God was easy. Now, to a certain extent, it's always been difficult to be a good human being, <laughs> to love God above yourself and to love neighbor above self and to seek holiness, right? That's, you know, that's just naturally difficult. Um, but, but in another way, I think our pre-modern ancestors, according to Lewis, didn't feel so strange when they had deep spiritual encounters. And I think for us, you know, sort of living on the other side of the scientific revolution, we've tended to absorb a mechanistic paradigm. That is, we tend to think of the world as a great machine. And in fact, if you think about it, we spend more time around machines than we do around natural substances. And so it's not surprising that our psychological imaginary, as, as Taylor would call it, is very mechanistic. And so we sort of think of ourselves as machines and think of the, as the world as machines. And if the world is a machine, then it's just a bunch of colliding molecules, right? which I can disassemble and reassemble at will, right? In our age, right, I can disassemble and reassemble my body at will, um, other people's bodies or this world, and I can make it into what I want because it's just a machine, right, in our kind of, you know, post-scientific right. revolution cultural imaginary. Well, so that means that if I have, a, if I have an experience of, of what C.S. Lewis calls joy, a sort of rich, saturated spiritual experience in which it feels to me that something from the heavenly worlds, from the other world has sort of erupted into my life 
and the temporal space in which I encounter it can barely contain it. Think in Ezekiel 2, a a, uh, Revelation 1, or a Isaiah 6 type of moment, right, in which this dense reality is so real. Well, for us, that doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe I need to get on medication because I have mental problems, right? Maybe <laughs> right. I, maybe it's just I have strong emotions because I've been traumatized as a child. We, we're always coming up with mechanistic explanations to try to explain what could be an encounter with beauty, with inspiration, with the spiritual life. For us, when we encounter spiritual realities, they seem weird and out of place, and we feel that we're the weird ones. That's what Lewis means by living in the the evil age of disenchantment. Whereas for our pre-modern ancestors, a moment like that, a moment of beauty, whether it's a moment in a cathedral, whether it's listening to rich, sacred music, whether it's looking at uh, art or literature, all of these sort of uplifting moments in some sense feel sort of a part of the natural gravity of the universe in which my rationality and my mind and my intellect are sublimated into worship. In some sense, sort of, so I'm kind of, you know, talking about a lot of things here, but what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that our ancestors had a more integrated view of humanity in which our different sort of faculties, our faculty that loves beauty, our faculty that loves truth with the mind, and our faculty that desires to worship, we're all a part of the same type of intellectual and spiritual journey. Whereas for us moderns, just like in a modern university, you departmentalize. Every single one of these things I've described, you might have a department of religion and a department of physics and a department of psychology, but they're in these silos. For our ancestors, they're all sort of blended together. So I think one of the, one of the brilliant things about Lewis is... He allows us to feel what our pre-modern ancestors felt, one. And two, he does it in the sort of way in which it doesn't seem out of date. It seems kind of winsome, kind of attractive, and it gives us pause. And so I think he, he, he gives us an embodied world, a holistic world, an integrated world, in which these different parts of being human from our relationships to our intellectual truth-seeking to our uh, encounters with beauty to our desire to pray and to praise are all kind of woven back together. Mm. I think that's how you can see his influence. Is it, It's working at a deep level, maybe not necessarily on some of the particular ideas, but the sort, I guess the, here's how you could put it in fancy language. The psychological model of what it means to be human is medieval. In C.S. Lewis's world. Whereas for us, when you want religion, you go to church. When you want culture, you turn on NPR and listen to classical music. Rather, certainly not all things considered, but <laughs> but, but <laughs> you, you, yeah, you, that could be deleterious for the soul. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, but but I mean, seriously, you you go to an art exhibit That's when right. you want culture. When you want entertainment, you watch a movie. So, so, so we have all these things are if very you in an art museum in, in front of a Monet, and all of a sudden knelt down and uh, and began to pray. You would get escorted out. Yes, <laughs> sir. Prayer yes. is not allowed in the museum. That's that's uh, for the church. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and so it's really hard as a person living in 2022 to escape that mindset. I mean, even as a Christian and one who strives to to do all things to the glory of God, that division of life, that type of atheism, I mean, the, the, the cultural atheism that Taylor talks about, yeah. it affects Christians who are not atheists, but we don't think in... Yeah, that's right. The realm of a whole. We are very much anti-Platonists in that yeah. sense. Yeah, we're very disintegrated. You're right. I think in some sense we, yeah, I mean, not atheist in the sense that we deny the existence of God, but a weird kind of practical atheist in which the the Venn diagram in which God is allowed to dwell is this kind of uh, psychological 
um, territory, this kind of psychological reserve, you know, nature preserve for God mm -hmm. and my religious emotions. And um, in fact, Lewis at one point says that that's, you know, that's one of the great dangers of being a modern is that you want this kind of, um, you want this kind of territory deep within, which it's just you. I don't want God to come in there. I just want to sit in the easy chair of my heart and be left alone. Right. <laughs> right. I don't want to be, you know, with God all the time. I don't want to be sort of invaded by him. I just want to be my own person. Right. So I think that's a sort of peculiarly um, modern difficulty is that sort of extreme individualism in which I don't mind meeting with God, but I, I need some, you know, a set appointment. Right. <laughs> and one on my terms. Exactly. Exactly. And in the Middle Ages, I think it was sort of, well, it was more like the Psalms say, right? Wherever I go, you will be there. It, um, yes. And so you could be a bad person, but in some sense, you were sort of conscientious of, uh, of dwelling in the disfavor of the divine. Yes. And, and I don't know if it was you. I, I think it's in your book uh, that I have almost every other page highlighted at least once. Uh, some places. Uh, some, it means a lot to me. You're the, clearly the ideal reader. Uh, I, I would have put you in the acknowledgments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well. Well. So. So. Well. I can just say that this book will will, will not be sold uh, again because no nobody would want all all the the ink that's in here that's my own much right, less yeah. yours. But. But at some point you talk about, I think, the loneliness that we have today. And, and, and if it's not here, it's another somewhere else that I read it. <clears throat> the loneliness we have as contrasted with in, in medieval era, they, you didn't have the opportunity to be lonely as much because you were around someone all the time. If you were... The, the, the idea of someone, let's say, a man who did, did not marry, who just lives by himself as a bachelor all the time, that was not something that they had back then. So, so even with other people, their views of being alone, being isolated, yeah. is different from ours. Yeah, I think, I think we're a very atomistic society. You know, we were talking about that sort of mechanistic paradigm, and I think it extends into our social interactions, right? Whereas for us, and I mean, there are some, you know, good arguable points about this, right? We're just sort of fundamentally individualistic and fundamentally atomistic, right? I mean, John, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Wealth of Nations. Yeah, Adam Smith. Adam Smith, right. Yeah, I was thinking John Adams. That's not right. Adam Smith, right, says it's, it's not for charity that the uh, that the butcher and the baker apply their crafts, right? But we sort of think of this, you know, in our sort of modern paradigm is fundamentally individualistic and, and atomistic. Whereas the medieval period thinks of human communities in terms of a choir, right? And ultimately, the choir begins with the angelic choir, right? This sort of invisible, who knows, infinite number of intellectual persons, right? Whose chief task is to pass on the vision, the worshipful vision they've seen to lower ranks and thus sort of communicate all these different sort of facets of the vision of God. But yeah. So I think, I think in a way, maybe replace, if we replaced our atomistic and mechanistic paradigm for how we think of a society functioning with something more botanical more biological, or maybe in terms of a choir, um, we, I think we, I think we're beginning to sort of feel some of the differences, as well as this. I and mean, sociologists have pointed this out, as well as this unique phenomenon in modernity that I'm able to be lonely in a crowd. Right, right. I'm able to be lonely even while being surrounded by people. That might be our unique gift to the world. <laughs> yes, yes, a gift that. Uh maybe has the, the name Pandora attached to it. So, <laughs> yes. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about some, some of the, the, the significant influences on Lewis, whom you, you, you discuss, you know, most people are familiar with George MacDonald, you know, because of surprise by joy that they, they, they know about that. But some of the, the earlier influences, one of the ones you, you speak of who I, I will say you motivated me to, to read him, because I've heard of Boethius, 
I've read about him, I've read his story, but I've not read the Constellation of Philosophy. And I was embarrassed after I picked up the Constellation that this is not a hard book. It's a very, I mean, it, it, it speaks to people now. And, so, but, 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 so talk about Boethius. What influence, how did he influence Lewis? And, and if you want to talk about, you know, Boethius himself, feel free. But just what was, what was the role of his influence? I'm so glad you said that because that's one of the things that Lewis himself said his mission was as a teacher was to convince people that reading, quote unquote, old books like Boethius's Consolation was not only easier, but more delightful than they might have thought. Yes. And that he's, he has this kind of very humble kind of um, this humble image of what his job as a writer and a teacher is, is to <laughs> introduce people to these things which are deeply nourishing, which um, which maybe just because they're old, we've you know, we haven't picked up or have been intimidated by. Um, but I think, yeah, I think um, so if you remember that. You know, scholars will say that the Middle Ages is between 500 A.D. and 1500 A.D. Right. Um, and Lewis disliked those type those uh, those tight timelines. Right. He you know, he writes about this in his Cambridge address, how he wants to have a more flexible, longer medieval period. And it's something that I borrow a term to describe it as the long Middle Ages. So if you think of the Middle Ages as something extending more like from ancient Greek antiquity, from Plato, all the way until maybe, you know, 17th century England. Then you could throw in there, you know, in quotation marks, also Plato and George Herbert, the the poet George Herbert, who was a uh, Church of England pastor and wrote these beautiful sort of devotional poems, mm-hmm. you know, in his spare time, which I, I would just encourage if you're if you're if your listeners are looking for an easy way to get into this, yes. maybe getting George Herbert's The Temple and read one poem aloud per day. And you could get through the temple, you know, in a couple of months. And I think it'd be, you'd sort of get a sense, a very sort of, you know, uh, gritty textured sense of of what we're talking about. But anyway, so if it's Plato and if it's George Herbert and we need to throw Augustine in there and certainly Dante um, and Boethius. So I call, I call at one point in the book, I call Lewis the British Boethius. And I think the parallels are really fascinating. The first is, as we've already mentioned earlier on in the show, that Lewis said that we live in an age of modern barbarism, a modern barbarism. And obviously, Boethius lives through this age in which the <laughs> the OG barbarians, right are, right, are beginning to arrive in the Roman Empire. And Lewis writes about that. And one of the things that uh, both our modern barbarians and the ancient barbarians have in common is they have disdain and contempt for classical culture. And Lewis describes us in our sort of, I'm going to be a little anachronistic here, but in our modern iPhone using TikTok, (laughs) surfing, YouTube, watching culture, who wants to take the time to do tedious things like learn ancient languages, like Latin and Greek. In some sense, we have a sort of inbuilt uh, natural disdain. Imagine, you know, talking to a high school kid, right? Hey, why don't you put down your uh, your TikTok uh, for 20 hours a week and learn some ancient Greek? Nope, not interested. Right. But one of Lewis's thoughts was is that both sort of barbarian cultures, as he said about us, were more self-satisfied than any previous aristocratic culture has been with itself, right? That's an, that's an amazing, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. That is a profound point. Isn't that 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 barbarians are self-satisfied? That's right. I've never thought of it that way, but they don't see a need for the past in any sense. That's right. What good are the you know the olden days if they didn't have access to all the electronic pleasure that we do? Yeah, and I mean, and that and that's kind of scary, right? It's. It's we live we live in a suffocating world and we're um, as a culture and we're unaware of the lack of oxygen. And so for Lewis, and I think this is another one of his sort of medieval ideas, this is a very Augustinian idea, this idea of of a holy restlessness 
a sacred inquietude. Augustine calls it an inquietum cor, right? The unquiet heart, the restless heart. If this is beauty, basically sort of injects this kind of sense of sacred restlessness in which I begin to hunger for something more. I begin to hunger for a sort of depth of relationship, right? Um, with God, with the world, with beauty, with myself, with my neighbor. And that can be, that can be an incredible awakening. Um, anyway, so I think that's a cool, um, that's a cool medieval concept, but going back to our Boethius, right? So we are barbarians. So now in the situation of Boethius, we have to remember that Boethius had these incredible ambitions for his life. His goal was to translate all of the works of Aristotle from Greek into Latin, all of the works of Plato from Greek into Latin. And then he wanted to write a couple of big treatises. He wanted to show how the liberal arts were, found their culmination in theology. And then he wanted to reconcile philosophy with theology. So he had this whole kind of life plan set out for himself. And in the end, he only translated one or two works by Aristotle and one or two works of these liberal arts. And then he was on seemingly trumped up uh, um, accusations. He was sent to prison. And he had two years before he was brutally executed, in which he was under this kind of house arrest, in which he wrote the Consolation of Philosophy, just, you know, prison literature. Mm. And so the book begins with his sense of, of frustration and regret. I, I had a good family. I had success. I had a job in which people honored me. I had good, noble ambitions, which I had the talent and the drive to fulfill. And all of that is cut short. Um, and so in this little short treatise, Boethius doesn't have the luxury to translate Plato and to translate Aristotle. He didn't have the luxury to write the scholarly treatise on what's the difference between Stoic, you know, a Stoic ethics and the Platonic ethics. He doesn't. He's like a man in a, in a, in a museum that catches on fire. He can grab three paintings on his way out. <laughs> you mm. want to get the Van Gogh or the Monet? Choose one and run. Right? He doesn't have the luxury of, in some sense, of being the, having the scholarly precision. He just has to save as much of classical culture as he can. And in this sense, Lewis called him the divine popularizer, right? The divine popularizer. And that he was just trying to make classical culture, it's sort of, it's mere, <laughs> mere classics. We could, you, yes. we could say riffing on Lewis. Lewis felt about himself in a similar way. His relationship to the long Middle Ages was analogous to Boethius's relationship to the long classical period. He was trying to save as many old ideas as possible, and he didn't have the luxury in a new barbarian age to use with you know a scalpel with surgical precision to say, to explain all the the you know the precise difficulties. He just wanted to make it as attractive and generally understood as possible, lest we lose it. Right. That, that's my argument of, I think, in some sense, how, you know, Lewis positioned himself in his own writing as a new divine popularizer. And as he said in a lecture he was giving to a group of Christian educators, I sometimes think we're going to have to make people good pagans before we can make them Christian again. And in some sense, while Lewis was not killed by, you know, political through political intrigue, he still died at a relatively young age, I mean, he was 65 is not, it was, it was not even like, I mean, it was younger than life expectancy back then when he right. died. Well, so, and, and you know, to a certain extent he had um, his colleagues in the university looked down on him for his popular publications. Right. And he was sort of ostracized from them. They thought that he had, uh, had lost his edge as a scholar and that he had become that some sort of, some sort of, you know, clearly psychologically traumatic event. It must have happened in Lewis's mind to make him convert to Christianity, right? <laughs> I think you know, right. in, in his own little way, he suffered for the name, um, analogous yes. to analogous to Boethius. And and I, I know he talked about when he moved, you know, everyone, especially over here in America that, that I've talked to with, with any type of liberal arts bent, you know, Oxford is held up as this ideal place it's where good americans go when they die right yeah. <laughs> right right and but lewis talked about when he left oxford and went to cambridge how much more he loved cambridge yeah because 
because at the time Cambridge was was a small smaller country town. Yes. And it reminded him more of the Oxford of his youth. Yes. Right? An Oxford of 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 birds nesting on the waters in May and quiet rivers and energetic students arguing about poetry as they walk through the streets. Yes. I mean, obviously both Oxford and Cambridge and this is a large part due to uh, Harry Potter have both sort of been kind of ruined by massive tourism. There are whole streets in Oxford which have been exclusively turned over to Harry Potter bookshops. Um, That's sad. Oh my word. It is, it is a little sad. It's yeah, kind of ruined the eco-diversity of Oxford. But but nevertheless, nevertheless, it still has, you know, it still has some of those old that old magic sleeping in the stones, and you can wake it up if you if you look for it. Oh, that I, I, I like that kind of language. But but yes, well, you know, Lewis said Cambridge at the time was a much more conservative place, but, but he talked about how he was not looked down on in Cambridge. Right. The way he was by the uh, by the dons and professors at Oxford. That's right. That's so, right. Yeah. you know, that's, well. His own Boethian moment in exile. Yes. Yes. Yes, that, 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 that is right. And then, so you, you discuss medieval cosmology, and, and at one point uh, in a previous podcast, we interviewed a young lady named uh, Christiana Hale, uh, who's on her book, The Deeper Heavens, regarding you know Lewis's cosmology and the Ransom trilogy, and of course there's Michael Ward's work, which is you know for anyone that pays attention to to this groundbreaking in scholarship. But yeah, it's kind of the gold standard, yeah. How does though? So so we live in uh, in next to Huntsville, Alabama, which is a significant engineering area. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of math and science, STEM. Uh, thinkers. Mm-hmm. So a common view is, well, look, this may be just fine for people that care about ancient ways of looking at the planet, mm-hmm. but that's not what the planets really are. You know, right. the, 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 the ancient view of the cosmos is kind of j- just an academic exercise for people who, who like fanci- fanciful stuff. Right. So, I'm skipping. I'm skipping ahead. I'm remaining with your talk with your chapter on medieval cosmology, but also skipping ahead to the end when you talk about this. But but tell yes. us how does an ancient view of the cosmos? How can it help our and, and our view today? And what is the relevance that that type of view has for us today? I think Lewis thought that he was going to start a conversation. He just wanted people to not have chronological snobbery, as he put it. He just wanted people not to have sort of disdain and contempt and to think that our uh, our ancient cosmologies were, I don't know, like these, these primitive, <laughs> ritualistic, superstitious types of things. But they actually preserved some type of deep spiritual insight, which we need to hold on to at the same time that we do our modern science. And if you, if you reread book three of Abolition of Man with this thought in mind, you'll see that Lewis, Lewis, though he lacks the tools himself to begin to say, well, what would a science, which also took theology and humanities seriously and done together, what would that look like? Lewis doesn't know. But he himself says, look, but I think there's a good reason to do that. Even contemporary scientists refer to models and modeling, right? I mean, I'm not a scientist and don't know a lot about it, but even just sort of reading popularly, right? In terms of quantum physics, what we have access to are mathematical models. We don't really know what the thing is itself. It's just sort of like the, the deep level of sub, you know, subatomic uh, as well as sort of particle physics is is matter ultimately reducible to energy, which just sort of turns into these material things when it sort of when, when it when it cools from its high energetic states? Maybe. In other words, we don't know. But if you just allow that, then this you go back and read ancient medieval science, then you realize they're saying something really similar. They have different terms for it. But if you just substitute, you know, a couple of terms for you know what the sort of things that we would say in high energy particle physics. There's something really interesting going on in which 
in terms of our modeling, as soon as you as soon as you use this sort of modern scientific term of modeling, that is, we're constructing intelligible ways of interpreting data. But we don't necessarily think that data is the reality itself. Then you're getting awfully close to a medieval way of viewing the world. Um, and so I think I think Lewis thought that this could be that our age could be an exciting age in which we don't have to abandon our science and we don't have to abandon our engineering. He said that our science might have to undergo something like repentance <laughs> and mm. confession, right? Um, because as he you know, famously put it in book three of Abolition of Man, science has more in common with magic than scientists want to want to admit. Right. That, you know, in some sense, the modern scientific enterprise, given the option, would rather have control than spiritual understanding of realities. Right. This right. is you, you mentioned the Ransom Trilogy earlier. Right. This is in some sense what's going on with Weston and the whole sort of Cambridge scientist. Right. They want control of particles more than they want knowledge of self. But all that having been you know, said, I, I, do try to, I do try to talk about this of sort of faith in science or myth in science at the end of this book. And I think Lewis thought that if science had a quote unquote, a, a moment of repentance, and, uh, and realize that some of these things which lie outside of its, of its methodological domain, that is spiritual and theological realities, rather than having the presumption to say that they don't exist because I can't touch them within my self-imposed limitations, if we began just to have a sort of you know humility of disciplines, um, then we might actually be able to practice these things simultaneously in really interesting and fruitful ways. And our science and our theology or our science and our, our, our liberal arts, our science and our humanities could unfold in really rich and mutually fructifying ways. And I think that's such a neat vision. And he borrowed that from his buddy, Owen Barfield, who said, we can't go back from modernity. We have to go through modernity. And yet, and so I think, I think, so what did Lewis think that he was doing? Lewis thought that he was preserving a light. He was preserving an understanding of the ancient world so that we wouldn't forget it. We would at least feel its attractive power. I don't think he wanted us to, you know, to go back and pretend um, that we weren't modern, but he didn't want us to forget how attractive it was such that in the appropriate time, these two different sort of enterprises could be fused again to the mutual enrichment of both of them. It's commonly contrasted falsely. I mean, it sh- should not be, but I, I think it's given a, a contrast between either everything the medievals had, including lack of dentistry and fleshful <laughs> commodes and stuff like that. Yes, those, or, are, those are the usual um, condemnations brought out against them. Yes. R- r- right. It, they don't have conveniences, and, and, and I, I'm not I'm not saying it, conveniences don't matter and sanitation doesn't matter. That's not what I mean. Sure. But but that's it's contrasted with today. Like, look, you don't get modern dentistry without TikTok. Those, they, they they go together like ham and eggs. So you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's, the so the choice is made either one or the other. But what I hear you saying is that that C.S. Lewis and others, I mean, he was not by himself in this, but they were saying, no, we can retain the vision that they had of a, of God in inspired and cohesion, you know, creating cohesion in all things that vision of heavenly light can inform what we do and actually make our day and our time a much better one if we will simply listen to what our fathers have said in the past. Yeah. Practice the virtue of reverence. Practice what the Romans called piety, pietas, right? Aeneas is famous for this property that um, before you condemn, Make sure that you understand. 
Yeah. I, mean, I, always, I always tell my students, look, your goal in an argument is not even to convince someone, but your goal in an argument is to argue a point well, clearly, and beautifully, such that even if your interlocutor locks, walks away without believing what you said, he or she will say, and yet I can see why it's attractive. I think that's in some sense what Lewis wanted to do for us with respect to our ancestors. I just want you to understand why they thought this way and admit with me. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then a very, a much more interesting and more difficult conversation begins after that has been done. Well, what can we retain? Um, what, you know, what can still guide our, our ethical behavior as well as even maybe even our scientific enterprises today? And that's a very, that's a very difficult question. And I think, I think Lewis has things to say about that. But he always sort of he always sort of approaches, throws a quick dart, and then runs away and sort of retreats right. back to his sort of historical understanding. Because I think I think he felt, yeah, that's going to have to be an enterprise for the next generation right. to think about how how to how to fuse these two things. But if I can just make people say, "You're right, Jack, that is really beautiful." Hmm, why is that so compelling even in our day? Then I think Lewis would sort of smile and say, "Great." But I think for, you know, I, well, I think the, the short answer is that I think Lewis thought that ultimate reality of the spiritual connection with God and in this world is deeper than our rational, than our rationality and our rational paradigms. And it can't be fully explained in quantitative terms or even in language. And thus every generation, even when it's telling the truth, is explaining things only partially correctly. And thus, we actually need multiple historical ages. Uh, th does this make sense? The models of multiple historical ages to point at the deep truth, which is too deep for any one of them to get it. It's kind of like, you know, if you got, you know, 12 speakers to all recite this, you know, a similar poem about the same subject in their different languages, all of those poems would be beautiful. And all of those poems would be true, but all of them would be different and to a certain extent imperfect as they tried to describe the reality. I think Lewis thinks about that as historical ages. And I think that's kind of a fascinating ecclesiology, right? Yes. An, ecclesi an ecclesiology which is chronologically stretched out in which in the fullness of time, we might meet our ancient ancestors and say, how did we miss what was so obvious for you? And they might actually turn around, you know, turn back around to us and say, and yes, but you know what the gift that you gave us in the world was, and thus in some sense, these different sort of epochs of the church will complement, complement and complement each other in the fullness of time, right? I don't know, maybe that's part of the secret why we need many nations and many tongues, but I'm kind of plagiarizing Dante's Paradiso here. Well, that that I'm 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 glad that that's a great segue into another one of Lewis's sig very significant influences is Dante, and of course you've written a couple of books on Dante. One shorter, and and I would suggest to anyone because I've read some of your essays. Uh, I've not read the book yet, but I've read some of your essays on Dante, and I I can say from those I recommend to anyone. To who's interested in the divine or in the divine comedy, to read Dante, just pick it up and read. But also, I would say for them to get Jason Baxter's book and and, and read it. So so there's the one, and then there's the the larger book you also have, right. which is a part of another project, but. Before I'm tempted to ask you about that, but but I'm I'm holding back. But, but I'd like to know though how how did Dante's view of the world help Lewis, and can how can he help us? How can Dante help us when we look at the world to see it from the right side up? Yes. Yeah, I, I have a chapter about this, what Dante taught C.S. Lewis. And the essence of the argument goes something like this. Lewis points out that in modernity, we have correct theology 
in which we say things like, in heaven, there will be no marriage. And in heaven, there will be no eating. And in heaven, there will be no dancing. And in heaven, there will be no painting and so on and so forth, right? And But the reality is for us moderns is that makes heaven seem kind of bleak <laughs> and sallow and sickly, right? And in fact, I think, you know, your, your listeners can just run this experiment, right? If you walk up to someone on the street and say, what do you think of when I say heaven? Chances are it's a cloud, an angel in white strumming a, you know, strumming a lute. How boring, right? This is why you see these t-shirts, right? I, I want to go to hell with my friends, you know, so I can surf and listen to heavy metal, right? Um, right. I mean, that really is our image of heaven. It's, it's pretty anemic, right? Of course you <laughs> don't want to go there and you might even flirt with the alternative, right? And so Lewis complimented Dante that Dante's sort of special power was the ability to retain good theology on this point. Dante knows that heaven is not literally any of these things. And yet, nevertheless, through his poetry, he does this magnificent thing of, in which he gives it gravity. He gives it weight. And I argue at, at, at one point, this is, this is where the meaning of that term with the weight of glory what's, is scriptural. But I think Dante, or sorry, Lewis is also thinking about Dante, is that Dante's sort of power is that he gives the imaginative image of heaven, or you could say sort of goodness in general, a weightiness. Mm. So I said it's positively desirable. So it, it doesn't, I think for most of the time, you know, I think maybe especially among our teenagers and sociologists have, have, have shown this, right? Is that holiness seems like a negative thing, right? Holiness means not having sex or not drinking to excess or not. It's, it's just a series of nots and then some, you know, some sort of action which you would prefer to do. Such that goodness for us is just this this entirely sort of negative creed. It's like remaining in a great sort of spiritual neutral. Right? Whereas Dante helps us, according to Lewis, feel about holiness, feel about goodness, feel about community, feel about love, feel about what uh, the Jewish theologian in the 20th century, Martin Buber, called an IU relationship. Feeling all of that as weighty and attractive. And that's Dante's gift to us. And I argue that's why Lewis loved Dante more than any other poet. And furthermore, I try to argue that that deep sensibility guided some of Lewis's own passages and his own exercises in imaginative fiction, such as the very end of The Great Divorce. Which is a yet another profound Dante-esque picture that you know when 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 he's taking the bus ride uh, that was i'd forgotten what all the great divorce was like until mm -hmm. i'd recently just picked it up and was thumbing through it and and looking at some of the sections that i had marked up with a highlighter probably 15 years ago now this is a habit of yours isn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it was um i was actually back when i was teaching and I was at a, uh, okay, I, I, I'll confess here. I was at a conference, an education conference, and they were giving us new techniques on teaching. It was at a very, very large room. And it was the height of modern education at its... It was like used to scrub school. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I was listening to this in a chair... And I had the great divorce in my hand, in my bag, and I just took it out, and I started reading. And I said, "I might not should I, I may not should be reading this right now, but I can either listen to paganism, or I can take in truth, and I'm going to go with truth." <laughs> there you go. There you go. I think Lewis. I think you and Lewis would. Uh... I'd have a good chuckle over that. He'd probably buy you a, a second beer of you. Oh, but 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 it was helpful for me in introducing a picture of the world. So Dante does this, and I know I, I was talking to someone recently, and this is not the first time that the person that someone has said, you know, I, I started the Inferno and. I read some of it and I, I really got bogged down or, or maybe they even make it to Purgatorio and they could not get through that. And, and I've said, please, if you can just keep on, 
it is wonderful, but it's it's it reaches its height when you read the whole thing. Yes. Well, Dorothy Sayers said, and this might pique uh, some of your uh, your listeners, but Dorothy says, Sarah says, you better be careful because wherever you end, there you will go. <laughs> if you, if you, That's if good. If you could at least sort of round the bend and get to Purgatorio, that might be some of a shock for some of your listeners, right? To uh, to wind up there, but um, yeah, no, I think I, I think you're right. I think, um, and I think one of the sort of geniuses of of Dante is that he he at first he makes the the sin of hell feel intimidating and violent and and real. But by the time he gets to the heights of heaven and looks back on that, um, and I'll be quoting, you know, paraphrasing Lewis on this, Dante's genius is that he makes those sins which seem so powerful and attractive seem not too strong, but too weak. Yes. It's, not that, it's not that they were excessive, it's that they, in some sense, understand what I mean, they weren't excessive enough, right? right. Perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love, I guess you could say, drives out sickly, anemic loves. Um, and I think that's the sort of glory of, as you were saying, um, I think that's sort of the glory of the comedy as a whole, is that by the time you get to the real thing, it's made the sort of divisiveness, the rancor, the holding on to family resentments, to lust, to um, to my anxiety, to my sort of workaholic addictive behaviors, all of which we have some sort of you know feelings about and for. It makes them seem so small. And that's Dante's genius. And that's why Lewis loved him so much. Yes. I mean, it's like the hymn says, by the time you were there, whether you were at the, you know, at Dante's Paradiso or whether you are in with Lewis and, and the Pevensey children at the last battle or, or even in the Ransom Trilogy at the end of that hideous strength. You are lost in wonder, love, and praise. When and for us, it's once you get there, if it really gets into your soul, yes, you have a hard time. It's hard coming down from yeah. that. I, I remember the first time I, I did not read the Chronicles of Narnia until I was in my twenties. I was, uh, it was my first year in teaching, and I was coaching also, and so I coached two sports. And once those two sports were over, I was not going to remain at that school, so I had about two months of actually going home every day after school at a normal time. So I went to the, to the high school library, and I checked out, said, I've heard of these. So I just checked out the, the Chronicles of Narnia. When I finished the last battle, I could not think, I could not speak. I, I was just totally yes. enraptured. That, that, that's the only way. And that, it's a very personal thing to talk about, but I, I was astounded. And very few things I've read before have affected me like it, like that did the, the first time I read it. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think that's where our medieval ancestors would say that's where prayer begins what you sort of described you sort of you know you kind of walked into the, the narthex of of the sort of temple of prayer in which basically i've come to the point where the medieval said that uh, once upon a time one of francis's followers wanted to know what saint francis did at night and so he pretended to go to sleep and francis got up in the middle of the night and went outside to the garden and the followers snuck after him to hear what he was going to pray. And he prayed the whole night, God, who are you and who am I? Who are you and who am I? I think in some sense, to have that sort of prayer move into that sort of, that state which sort of borders on speechlessness, where you find yourself groaning with, groans too deep for words, something like, Lord, make me whole. Lord, <laughs> you can heal me if you wish, right? I think, right. yeah, I, I think that's sort of beautiful, but sort of literature kind of going right up to the kind of the, the periphery of, of the prayerful. And and in your in your chapter on mysticism, C.S. Lewis and mysticism, which he himself, I mean, he said, 
that he was not a mystic. He did, yes. But that he was, I mean, he obviously had that side to him, though. That's right. Due to the books, you know, David Downing's book on yes. uh, the mysticism and C.S. Lewis. I yeah, think it's regional. Regional. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But you talk about Lucy Pevensey, yes, as being the 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 most mystical in a sense of yes. the Pevensey kids, and, and it's not that she is particularly the greatest or the least, but she just she has a side to her that can see like in I think it's Prince Caspian where she where she is the only one who can see Aslan that's right and and she follows so it seems like that there's a, a good lesson for us when it comes because she is the youngest of the four the need for retaining childlike faith yes in 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 our pursuit of God. Yes, maybe you could say that that Lucy's secret gift is being possessed more than anyone else with, with that sense of sacred restlessness that we described. She's more discontent with mere earthly goods. Now, obviously, there's a way of being sort of discontent with, you know, with, with the good things that, that you've been given. But in some sense, to feel that, yeah, freedom from self-satisfaction freedom from self-complacency, or to describe it in more positive terms, a hunger which is only fully satisfied in the depths of love. I think that's, that's, that's how I, I read Lucy. That's how I, I feel Lucy as this, this soul which wants to walk, over to walk to the edge of language and then dive over and plunge within. Yes. Right? Plunge within to this kind of this, this ocean of love and union and intimacy which is beyond virtue, which is beyond mere sort of goodness, beyond mere codes, even beyond sort of mere correct rational formulations, and wants to get to the core of things. I think Lewis wanted that with all of his heart. And he also thought that, well, any good Christian will, within the fullness of time, become a mystic. So I better just focus on being a good Christian for now. Right, yes. It, it, as I've actually advised People, when, when they bring up things, you know, somebody said, can I, do I need to look to my dreams to, you know, to understand what's going to happen? And I said, nowhere are we told to dissect our dreams. And I don't think that C.S. Lewis would, would have said for anyone to try to, you know, take a strong Freudian leap into your dreams to understand what truth is. But yeah. if you are, if you're trying to walk with God, through his word in the sacraments in in the gifts that he's that he's tangibly given he will i mean that's seeking first his kingdom and then everything else he's he will add mm -hmm. in his in his good time right so well we're we're going to need to to wrap up i really appreciate you taking the time to talk uh Thanks. this, this morning great yeah, so for everyone, again, the book is The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And I also want to say, if you go to Dr. Baxter's website, it's uh, www.jasonmbaxter.com, and you order a book through his website, you can, you can get it, and he will sign it right. for you. Which Jeff Bezos won't sign a copy for you if you go on alternative websites. Yes, right. yes, and, and it's not—it's not a higher price, so he doesn't charge ten extra dollars for his uh, for his signature there. No. So, so, so feel free to, to buy it from his website, also. So, thank you again, Dr. Baxter. I, I appreciate this. Do you have any other projects coming up that we should anticipate? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a new translation of Dante's comedy, which will be coming out over the next couple of years. Wonderful. And it looks like I'm also going to be doing a kind of beginner's guide to Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, another one of those kind of Mount Everest of literature that everyone knows he or she you know, quote unquote, ought to read, 
But then again, it's also an eight eight hundred page book. So I, I'm those those are two projects I'm working on now. Well, good. Well, we a beginner's guide to the brothers is a very will be very helpful. So anyway, so thank you again for taking time today, and uh, and the Lord bless you in all of your work. Thank you. Thank you.